I'm Tyler Hake, and you're listening to Season 1, Episode 4 of Next Story Up, a smart building services podcast by Schneider Electric. Act 1. Perfect Pairing Over the past two decades, drinking wine has to a large degree become destigmatized and democratized, much to the delight of the wine retail industry, which in 2017 registered over $62 billion in sales in the U.S. According to the Silicon Valley Bank's State of the Wine Industry Report for 2019, which, in all seriousness, I found to be a fascinating read, U.S. annual wine consumption has more than doubled since the early 1990s due to many factors, but one of which is no doubt this democratization. In my view, this great spreading is due in part to new movements in the world of wine, like natural wines and bioorganic wines, in part to a consumer shift that prefers experiences over things, in part to successful media awareness through launches like the Netflix Psalm documentary, which humanizes and in some respects glamorizes the winemaking industry and sommelier profession, and in part to the growth of restaurant industries and cities throughout the country as the pendulum shifts from patronizing chain restaurants to, again, more authentic experiences. Wine is not exclusively for C. Montgomery Burns anymore. Not unlike craft beers, wine is cool again. It's having a moment. Typically, more exposure and more awareness lead to more familiarity and comfort. But man, wine is tricky on that front, and I'm speaking from experience. I'm engaged to a wine expert, and it's still slow going for me. Even having learned some things, each time I walk into a wine retail shop and hear those chimes sound behind me, it's hard not to feel overwhelmed when the frame of vision includes hundreds of bottles displayed with 22 headings above them, including things like Bordeaux, Cab Franc, Red Esoterica, Italian Reds, Spanish and Italian wines, Loire Valley, Sancerre, White Miscellany, and Austrian Alsace, among others. And in case you're wondering, yes, I took these notes from within a wine retail shop. Where does one start? Do you recognize that feeling? I wasn't completely sure, so I, of course, went to Google and typed in uncomfortable buying wine. What I found took me down nothing short of a delightful rabbit hole featuring articles from legitimate publications like Bon Appetit magazine, A Real Life Guide to Buying Wine, Esquire, How to Buy Wine, Winefarer, Tactics to Buying Wine at a Wine Shop, and GQ, The 20 New Rules of Buying Wine. Here are some of my favorite sections. From Esquire, it must be thrilling to experience an entire movie theater concession stand within a single glass of old grape juice. Unfortunately, I and most of my fellow earthlings simply are not interacting with wine on this level. Oh sure, I've hated wines and I've loved them, but if I'm honest, aside from a few winemakers whose names have managed to stick in my brain, my only real tool for steering toward a better bottle is its price, and that, as it turns out, is a pretty rudimentary mechanism. From Winefarer. It's safe to say that entering a wine shop to buy wine for yourself, someone else, or a particular occasion can be extremely daunting. Aisles of wine are literally staring you in the face screaming, buy me, choose me, pick me. So where do you begin? From Bon Appetit. When I first started buying wine, I dreaded coming off like an idiot. You know the feeling. You scan the aisle for a particular label, but then the shelves close in and paranoia creeps up. The clerk, he's watching, isn't he? He knows I know nothing about wine, doesn't he? You pretend to read a bottle like you somehow just learned French. 
The only thing you can decipher is the price, which is even scarier than asking for help. You grab the closest bottle and get the hell out of there. And from Esquire again. So it's no wonder that, for the casual drinker, buying wine is so fraught with anxiety. This is the paradox of choice. With literally thousands of bottles to choose from, the vast majority of which fall within the good enough category, we become paralyzed to act. My friends, this is a $62 billion retail industry with voluntary, discretionary spend, and effectively the only thing anyone knows about making a purchase is that they're scared when it's time to do it. Imagine this problem from the perspective of the wine retailers. These are people who do know wine and do know what they have on the shelves. There is an optimal, best-fit wine in their inventory for every single customer that walks into their store. But it's difficult or even impossible to level set with customers who don't know what they like or want or need in the first place. Wine retailers devote their professional lives to this, but their customer base is constantly intimidated and flustered because for them, there's simply too much to know. Price aside, most consumers aren't ready to consume the top shelf anyway because they couldn't possibly appreciate the difference between the best and what Esquire called the good enough category. There is an immense disconnect between the high level knowledge and top shelf tastes and recommendations of the wine community and the entry and various lower levels and phases of understanding occupied by their customer base, what we are willing and able to discern, communicate, and enjoy. If retailers could bridge that gap, the sales experience would be more efficient and fun instead of harrowing, and that $62 billion number would be smashed to bits overnight. In an environment where customers are timid and uninformed, it's only natural for them to be sensitive about price, leery about anything that is new, and keeping one eye on the exit door the entire time they're in your shop. What if I told you that we in the buildings industry have the same issue? That we're the wine retailers? What if I told you that automation folks like us are all aware that today we have the technology to help any customer make prudent investments to save more energy, avoid more maintenance and downtime, and assure that their building occupants are more comfortable and happy, thus increasing their performance at the same time, but our customers are sensitive about price and leery about something that feels so new or seems to change so quickly. Would that surprise you? Certainly, there are customers today who are ready for or have already employed full-blown predictive analytics. There are far more who haven't taken even the most basic of first steps. We can no longer allow the majority of our customer base to feel like I do when I walk into a wine store alone, overmatched, confused, intimidated, and defensive. We need to meet our customers where they are, regardless of where that is, and help them learn and understand so that they can progress to the premier technologies we know front to back. And we need to do it fast. The more customers we enlighten, the better our buildings, cities, and societies will perform. As Tom Vanderbilt says about wine tasting in his book, Taste in the Age of Endless Choice, there is a kind of feedback loop in which the more you taste, the more words you come up with, which then unlocks more flavors. The question in intelligent services then is how do we get to that first taste? And what comes next in that feedback loop? And I ask this of our next guest. James Milet is the Vice President of Channel Development for U.S. Digital Energy at Schneider Electric. A constant champion for the importance of understanding complex customer needs in a fast-evolving national market, James is a strategic thinker, a terrific storyteller, and an early mentor and advocate for the concept of this very series. 
Our discussion will follow in Act 2. Act 2. Dream big, start small. But most of all, start. Simon Sinek. And with that, let's dive right into our conversation with James. The intent today is, uh, just as in purchasing wine, uh, it can be difficult or overwhelming to match your level of readiness or capability with a purchase you might make in building technology in an unclear world of really massive choice. So um, there are many ways to get started on a strategic journey with building analytics, and no first step is too small. Certain building types or building customers will have more demand or savviness for data than others, uh, but all will be able to pursue strategies that can allow them to optimize the performance of their facilities. Uh, the data is there. It's always been there. The yep. only thing now is to figure out how to best put it to work for your own specific goals and requirements. So how do you feel about that description and those those comparisons I made in the, in the intro there? No, I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. I, you know, As you were talking through that, there was a... Uh... You know, I got kids and I remember watching an episode of Jimmy Neutron, right, where they're getting into this discussion around uh, this information that Jimmy's got in his hand. And his buddy Sheen walks over, grabs a piece of paper out of his hand and looks at his his counterparts and says, never argue with the data. Right. So I I think the data has been there for a long time. The challenge that we all have is how do you simplify it and getting the data into a format that we can take action on, right? And um, getting it positioned to people who need to take action in a way that's meaningful to them, that's the challenge. And yeah. you know, I, I think and we've come so far in the last 18, 24 months on that front, the speed of change is just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. and so for, for folks that haven't really been involved with it previously, and to continue with that wine analogy, what is the entry level wine, if you, if you will, for intelligent building services in, in your opinion? I think it depends on the outcome, right? So I think anything relative to intelligent building services really needs to be done in terms of, you know, the context of what's the outcome that I'm trying to have an impact on, right? So if I think back on when I started my career back before the turn of the century, I had a job as a stationary engineer with MD Anderson Cancer Center. And, And at the cancer center, they had this offsite building where they kept a lot of laboratory mice, you know, where they, they did cancer research and things like that. So, you know, we had to make sure that those environments were such that the, the mice survived, right? It's really important. <laughs> a lot of money invested in those experiments. Yeah. So, you know, way back then, I'd walk around the facility with a big chief tablet and Crayolas and write down all the information that was on the equipment, you know, because the outcome I was trying to drive was make sure the, the environment was protected. So if I think about it in that context, and if I'm a facility operator and I'm in a critical facility and my key outcome is equipment uptime, what I wanna do is identify what are the key leading indicators I can get out of the information and get that into a simple report or a simple alert or an app that allows me to digest that information proactively and act on it. So I, I don't think there's a one size fits all to that that question. I really think it's situational. But the, the first thing is to do the first thing, which is to make a decision to go. I think that's an awesome point. Really, it goes back to some of the things that we, we've discussed on this podcast and often that the entry level is really talk to your customer, you know, yeah. figure out what that first step needs to be. And if you have some success there, then it'll only grow. But you'll never know what that first step should be without talking to each unique customer that you've got. So many solutions in our in our industry. I, I think we've we've been guilty of this 
for a long time, uh, and, I, and I've seen a huge change here recently, but so many of the solutions, and I'm doing the air quote thing, you can't see me, um, <laughs> are, are done with a lot of really smart people in a room with other really smart people and a whiteboard ideating and coming up with ideas, and then it becomes a hammer looking for a nail. Yep. And uh, I, was, I was asked to go meet with a battery technology team a few years ago from one of my board members at a, at a company I was with. And, you know, I went and I looked at the technology and my first question was, well, when you talk to your customers, what was it that you heard from them that landed you in this position? And, you know, it was like I'd asked a, a foreign question and the reality was nobody had gone and talked to customers. Yeah. Ooh, that's a gap, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think for for us in this space, you know, we start talking about how do we accelerate, and how do we, you know, move faster towards where we're all going to land anyway. I think it really starts with the, those customer conversations and and helping to get them what they need to be more productive in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, that that's so well said, and it it also goes back to the theme of this, which is. You know, in the wine industry, you've got wine experts, and in our industry, you've got people that are technology experts that talk to themselves and sort of insulate themselves and come up with obvious choices of, okay, this is, of course, what, what people should do. Yeah. Um, you know, aside from those choices, with wine, you've got red with beef and white with seafood, right? Really nailing that choice is, is personal. So from a building operator's perspective, what advice would you have for them in, in knowing what the right sort of pairing is for, for their building? Yeah, so go, going back to that analogy, I know... For myself, I'm probably one of the least astute people when it comes to selecting wine. So that's one of the, you get these intimidation moments in your life, right? Exactly. So you're sitting with a large group and somebody hands you the menu of wine and says, what would you like, sir? And, you know, so my first question is, you know, what would you recommend? Yeah. And the best outcomes are ones where the response is, well, tell me a little bit about what you've liked in the past. So I think the advice is for the building operators, back to the outcome question, is to ask the right questions of your customer to where you really have clarity around what the outcome is that they're trying to get to, and then architect towards that, point the ship in that direction so that you can you can amplify that outcome. That's really good advice. I mean, it's it's crazy how many people, when they talk about wine, say, you know, I'm the last person you should be talking about, and I feel uncomfortable about it. And, and why I was so excited to talk to you about this topic in particular is because the last thing we want to do is make any of our customers, you know, have that deer in the headlights moment with, with things that we think are great. And I know you do a great job of, of getting to the bottom of what customers need. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a philosophy or a question that goes out there all the time that, you know, you, you want to treat people the way that you would have them treat you. And I don't believe in that. I, I think you want to treat people the way that they want to be treated. And so in order to find that out, you've got to ask questions. And I think that same dynamic applies to what we're talking about here. The only people that are going to know really what they like, you know, so if you go back to the wine analogy, yeah. are the people with the palate, right? So, but what you've got to do is ask questions that tease that out, that put you in a better position to really understand, okay, now I, now I know what you need. Yep. So here's, here's a potential solution for you. Let's talk a little bit about this. I think the same can be said as we start to architect dashboards and apps for our customers. Yep. So, I mean, on that topic of palate then, right? In wine, the people that have better palates a lot of times have just tasted more wine. So part of the intent with building services is once you start, you'll get a little bit of a, a better appreciation for what, what, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, what have you seen happens uh, when you begin to sample more building services? Yeah. 
So you, you sample more. Um, so I, I'll give you a great example. I was yeah. I was with one of our customers just a couple of weeks ago at one of our innovation events, and a large large university in the Midwest that you know took took the plunge and jumped into a pretty significant investment in an advisor platform. And basically, they they set the campus up to where they could put the the campus equipment and technology in a better position to give us information so that we could do something. You know, a year later, they drove, I think the number you shared with us was somewhere around $600,000 okay. worth of measurable savings. And, that, you know, I always amplify that because anytime you do these programs, there's measurable savings and then there's the soft savings, which a lot of times are just as critical, just as important. But as a result of that, now they're going campus-wide. And as they're designing new facilities, they're designing them with these advisor platforms in mind. And what they find is there's not only the savings that they get from energy or operations, but there's a capacity build that happens because their people are more effective, more efficient because they got better information. And as you think about constraints in our industry, there's not a lot of people tucking their kids in at night saying, I hope you grow up to be a chief engineer or a plumber or an electrician, right? Yeah. So those are rare resources that we all cherish and anything we can do to build capacity into that resource is a win for everybody. And uh, so I think they're seeing they're seeing that as well. So as you start to build more capacity into these rare resources that you have, you want to do even more of that. So I think the speed really picks up. Yeah, it builds a virtuous cycle. Yeah. I have one more question here that's themed around wine. <laughs> when you order a bottle in a restaurant, and maybe you get that deer in the headlights look, you get a little taste up front to ensure that the wine hasn't gone bad or is corked. Can you sample in our industry as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think... I think customers do that all the time. The rate of that is continuing to increase because as as new people come into the, the workplace, their expectations are different, yeah. right? So there's a flexibility component that has emerged. And I, I used to say is instead of has. And what I've recognized that I would have said that a couple of years ago, that there's a dynamic that is emerging around flexibility, but it's here. And I think with most of these changes that we talk about, by the time we start talking about them, the thing we need to recognize is they're probably already here, yep. right? Just because of the speed of change. But yeah, there's a flexibility expectation that has arrived in the workplace, which has to facilitate people being able to, to sample and try and get it just right for them. Personalization is so much more important today, I think, than it ever was. So I, th I think we're going to see even more of that as we go forward. And it has an impact on how we design our solutions, frankly. We've got to be able to skate to where that is and where it's going. And we've got to design for flexibility and future-proofing. Yeah. And I think that that future-proofing is so important for words that I personally hear all the time, which are experience and expectation and personalization, and really does kind of customize what we're offering. And and what we're enabling our customers to do via innovation with technology platforms. So very well said. Yeah, the experiences drive the belief system, right? So you know what you experience drives what you believe, and what you believe drives how you act, right? So that experience is so much more important today than I think it ever it ever has been. Yeah, I mean, so and I I'll build off of that because there's in terms of what you experience being what you believe, there's a a growing demographic of people who have never known a world without internet connectivity and mobile iPhone, iPad type devices. And those people are 10 years old and younger, right? So their experience in life is just that. 
And so their expectations are only about personalization, customization, flexibility. And so sometimes I think we get in a blind spot of that, but it, it does truly inform the expectations of people that are occupants in buildings and, and future customers. Well, think, I mean, think about people that you know, have grown up in, in the world of Uber and Lyft, yep. where instead of having to stand out in the rain on Broadway in New York and hold your hand up trying to hail a cab, yeah. you know, you, before you walk outside, you get on your app and you order it and it shows up and you know what you're getting and you can see the ratings and, and you have choice, right, in, in what you do. If all of a sudden that went away, you just think about the revolt that would kick <laughs> yeah. in because yeah. it would be criminal. The experience relative to what they had experienced before would be a criminal experience for them, and they would not tolerate it. And I, I think that's the piece that that encourages me about you know that, that we're going to get to where we need to get to with smart buildings is because the tolerance level of the people who are living inside these buildings has changed just so dramatically. I was I had a chance to spend some time with a uh, with a guy, I say a guy, he's a multi-billionaire a couple of years ago <laughs> that does a lot of startups. So I won't mention his name here, but super smart guy, obviously. And he's got a startup in this space. So he asked me to come in and, and talk to him a little bit about the space. And he had his chief of sales there. And he, he asked me, he goes, what is it that concerns you the most about speed and adoption? And before I could open my mouth, the chief of sales said, well, there's a lot of gray hair in that industry. You know, the smart guy, he said, it's not the gray hair that concerns me. It's the gray brain that concerns me. And, I, you know, I'd never heard that term before. I said, what, you know, what do you mean by gray brain? And he, he said, it's, it's an old way of thinking that's hard to get past sometimes. And sometimes you have to wait for the mindsets to change before you can see the change. And it really resonated with me. And, I, you know, I think about folks that are in the buildings business that have been in it for a long time, you know, like me that have been in it for a long time. And we grew up in a world where you, you put equipment in that you expected the last 20 to 40 years. And I think a lot of the technology components that we put in can last that long, but for them to operate in a modern way, they have to change. And part of what we're doing is trying to future-proof things to where we can make sure that the, the systems evolve as expectations evolve and change. And I do think that with the rate of change that we're seeing with people coming into the workplace, the gray matter is changing and the expectations have changed and the tolerance level is so much different today than it was 15 years ago. And that's what gives me hope that we're going to get to where we need to get to quickly. I, I think that that is so exciting too, because that's more people asking why not. And when more people ask why not, things change faster. Oh, not everybody gets it either. I, I, was, at, I was up on a site of another company that that does work in our space and they had a chart there that was key milestones in innovation you know i went back to the starting point and there was some really cool stuff that i didn't realize that this company had been at the forefront of so i'm scratching my chin okay this is interesting and i start moving to the right and i get to 2012 and it stops <laughs> and I'm like you know, i'm clicking where you know where's the rest yeah. and it stopped and so I'm thinking back, okay, 2012, you know, I, I've, I've got my iPhone here in my hand and I've got an iPhone 10 because I'm a, you know, I've got to have the latest gadgets. Right. In 2012, so we're in April, April 2012, the most modern iPhone was an iPhone 4. And I don't know anybody that carries one of those anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure everybody gets it. The speed of change is just so much different than what it was. And if you're going to survive and lead, 
you have to innovate and innovate with speed just to keep up with expectations. Another great thing is there are significant societal problems that, that we have the potential to address. So you've got yeah. sustainability, climate change, urbanization. We have technologies to help address many of these things. So if the future is here, you know, why, why isn't it widely distributed? Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's an equation that I use. It says, until the pain of staying the same gets greater than the pain of change, change doesn't happen. Yeah. And so why hasn't it moved with more speed up to this point? I think the pain of staying the same hasn't been great enough for some organizations, some people, some individuals, but that's changing. You know, as, yeah, as I, I talk to, to leaders in, in companies, uh, you know, that are, that are in these facilities that, that we create environments for, big challenge that's consistent across the board is this ability to attract and retain talent and getting back to the expectation dynamic, the talent that they're trying to attract that's going to create this, this new future for their organizations has an expectation around what that facility is going to look and feel like and how flexible it's going to be. And if they don't adapt or adopt to create that environment, then their position for attracting and retaining talent changes, and that's going to create pain. And I think that'll be a tipping point for some organizations, or has been already. I think that it's so cool to see stuff like that in real time. So obviously we're talking about building technology and analytic services and all these things you can do with platforms. But you know, one of those changes and societal things that I mentioned in the question was urbanization. And I was at an engineering firm recently that was situated maybe 25, 30 minutes outside of their urban city center where they were. Yeah. And they were putting up their building for sale. They'd been there for 30 years. And frankly, it was a really nice building. It had you know, really cool features, lots of daylight. It was, it was cool. And I said, well, why, why are you moving? And they said, we're going to the city because we can't get people to work here now. The new yeah. people that are coming out of school, they don't want to work 30 minutes outside of the city. So you see some of that stuff play out in real time. And to your point of speed, I'm seeing it happen at a much greater clip than I did five, 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, you know, I've, I've got a kid I, I used to coach soccer years ago. He went, went to Rice, got his master's, and now he lives where you live, in my hometown of Brooklyn. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's called me a couple of times about some opportunities. And, you know, one of the things that is a hesitation for him is just the ability to live where he's living. He right. loves, you know, he loves that. So this, this balance becomes more and more important for folks that are that are in the workplace today that are making decisions and uh, yeah it's it's where it's where the market has moved do you believe that those types of expectations is that the tipping point that's coming that or maybe is already here that will give buildings their mass transition moment or is it is it part of it does it happen building by building what's your take on that well, I, I think it happens building by building in, in smaller organizations. I think it's already happened in larger scale with okay. bigger organizations and institutions. So, you know, I mentioned universities earlier. We're seeing a lot of movement there, but getting back to being able to attract students, you know, what do they expect in terms of their experience? And when they come do their tours, you know, they're asking about Wi-Fi and they're asking about connectivity and they're asking questions that line up with where, you know, the industry has already moved to. I, you know, as I talk to large facility management companies, same thing. You know, we've got a, a partner on the West Coast that is grabbing a lot of market share because of the way that they've adapted our platform to create a different user experience for tenants. And because they've been able to do that, 
their customer, the the uh, the management company, is able to charge more right. for square footage in the facility because they can create a differentiated environment. So it's here. It's definitely here. I have a, a, a bit of an anecdote on that, too. I graduated from Virginia Tech now 10-ish years ago, and I, I went to talk to a current student there recently, and he was explaining to me, it looked like campus was changing a lot, and I said, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. And he said, they just refurbished their final dorm and that dorm was so old that people had to use physical keys to get into their rooms <laughs> and I I said wow that's crazy but in the back of my head I'm thinking I think I'm some younger guy and I had to use keys everywhere while I was here um, yeah. it's changed so quickly that he was he was dumbfounded by that he was embarrassed to tell me so uh, to that point you know I, I think that you're you're, you're... Yep. all right so uh, back to our industry then what can we do as an industry to to make all these technologies uh, more approachable and, and continue to push this tipping point forward. Yeah, I'm a believer in lighthouses, and I, you know, I think part of our responsibility, you know, as, as a leader in this space, yep. uh, is to be that lighthouse. So, you know, what that means is finding more opportunities to get out and shine a bright light on people who have already done what you know some people think is just still a concept today, yep. and uh, show the business results, the business impact from adopting and adapting some of this this technology as we go forward. So yeah, I, I think a big part of what we can do even more of is to be more of a lighthouse. From the uh, building operator perspective, for them to take advantage of these, is it to learn about these lighthouses or are there some specific first steps that you think they can take? Yeah, you know, you, you'd mentioned tasting before, right? So, yep. you know, I think getting out into the, the industry and, and trying to get a feel for what people are doing, lessons learned, best practices is, is always a great first step. But then it, it gets back to really taking a look at your own organization and having just clarity around what you're trying to get accomplished and taking those first steps in that direction. Because that's, that's the type of thing that builds momentum. If you're able to have an impact on your business results through, yeah. through these types of technologies, you're gonna want more of it faster. And that's what we see with customers that take these first steps. And, you know, some customers take bigger first steps yeah. than others. You know, some customers cannonball into the pool. But it's that first decision, right, to move is what creates all the difference in the world. The organizations that have difficulty with that first step are going to be the ones that are the most disadvantaged as, as we move forward because... Again, the pace of change is just so quick. Yeah, I, you know, I'm looking at a, I've got a chart here on my wall that highlights the number of years it took to, right? So how long did it take to get the 50 million users for credit cards? It was 28 years. It was, it was 62 years to get the 50 million users for cars, seven years for the internet, and Twitter, it took two years to get the 50 million users. I think Pokemon Go got to like 16 million users in like 48 hours, right? I'm guilty. Yeah, so the speed is just so dramatically different. And folks that are leading organizations, one of the things we, we just need to make sure we're, we're clear about is that we have to move at a different pace than we've ever moved at in the past. And these first steps are, are even more critical today than they've ever been. Yeah, and I think given that all customers are different, all buildings are different, all people are different, it might be more obvious for some of them to dive headfirst in, maybe given the industry they're in or maybe the, the, the corporate culture. But it sounds like what you're saying, and I think is a really good point, is that from the perspective of you know some customers, for them to understand the type of impact that they can make, they need to understand their business. And if it's, if it's tougher going in that business, what's the biggest impact they can make in terms of what's important to their specific business? 
I think it's important that you help us understand your business yeah. because the better we can understand what you're trying to get accomplished, the better position we're going to be in to bring this innovation to you in a way that makes the most sense for you and for your situation. That's really key. So I, you know, I think that's, again, starting with the customer first and, and working out from there, the organizations that really lead are the ones that take the time to really understand what is it that the customer is trying to get accomplished so I can understand what I can do to help them accomplish what they're trying to do. Speaking like a true sommelier right there. <laughs> that's great. All right. So that's, that's, that's wonderful. I've, I've, I've learned a lot and I knew I would. Um, but I, I'd also like to know, I mean, I think I, I know that you are excited to be in this industry, but what particularly makes you most excited about the time that you're spending working in building technology? I, I think the pace, you know, the pace change yeah. is what energizes me probably more than anything else. It, you know, the technology that we're talking about, a lot of this has been around for a lot of years, but the speed of change is just so dramatic right now. And that's that's what excites me more than anything. I've been, been in the industry a long time, seen a, a lot of change over the years, but the pace of change is is something that I've never seen before, and and that's part of what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's wonderful, James. Always great talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate you doing these. This is this is great stuff. An episode focusing on wine seems fitting particularly as we cast our eyes toward the champagne aisle here at Next Story Up, now that we're on the other side of the halfway point of our season one journey. Thanks to those of you who have been along for the ride so far, and if you're just joining us now at this stop, welcome aboard. Feel free to take a look into the rearview mirror of what we've done so far while we continue to cruise to our destination. And if you're picking up on the highway travel theme in this outro, there's good reason for that. Hitch a ride with us and find out what we're driving towards in the next Story Up. I am so excited to develop, produce, and host the Schneider Electric Next Story Up podcast, and most importantly, to share it with a listener like you, possessing the same interest and passion in promoting smart building services for the benefit of all. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. I'm Tyler Hake. Communications changed too. I mean, yeah, I've got a 14-year-old daughter, and she sent me a text the other the other day asking if she could go to a movie with some friends. And so I looked at the text, and then I looked next to me where she was sitting, and I said, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> so.